welcome to Nothing Ever Happens in Canada. But we know this is simply not true. I'm Canadian Girl. Thanks for joining me today. How is everyone doing? Have you been on any awesome summer adventures? I'd love to hear about them. You can always reach me at the handle at Nothing Canada on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you want to send me an email at CanadianGirl2319 at gmail.com, send me a pic from your adventures this summer and I'll send you one of mine right back. I've been off for almost a week now, just taking some much needed time to myself. And it has been relaxing, full of nature and lovely. But I've also missed this show and all you guys. And as you can tell, I'm sitting here writing this on my holiday so you could say you're all on my mind. That being said, I want to thank my lovely Patreons, Kevin, Jennifer, Bailey, the Into the Portal podcast team, and Bonnie, who have all joined one of my exclusive crews over on my Patreon page. These lucky crew members have already been on three new adventures, and there are four more adventures about to come out this month. If you're interested in helping out the show, you can by joining one of these crews today so we can all go on more exciting adventures together. The link is always in the show notes below. You can always help in another awesome way by subscribing or commenting on the show in the app that you're listening on. And if you have two minutes extra, if you head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating, even if it's not where you listen to us normally, they seem to control most things in the podcast world. So do head over there and let us know what you're thinking. And if you don't know what to say, just say hi. I'll say hi right back. And the other very important thing, tell everybody you know. Tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your best friend, tell your grandma. Tell everyone to listen to this show that loves Canada. These super simple things that you can do help this podcast out so much and mean so much. We then move around in podcast charts and meet more awesome crew members just like you to join our already incredible team. Enough of all that business stuff though. Let's get into this true crime adventure right here in Alberta that I was able to go walk around through the grounds myself. We're off to the Fort Heritage Precinct here in Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta, just about 40 kilometers northeast of Edmonton, a place that was once the law and order center of Alberta, a place where 29 people were convicted and executed by hanging. Some were even believed to be wrongfully convicted, leaving their unsettled spirits on the grounds to this day as some believe. Most famously, a woman named Florence Lasandro. Join me now as we jump into this true crime tale about the lives of a man known as Emperor Pick and a woman they call the Mobster Princess. A word of caution here for those that have little ears in the same room listening or if old true crime tales and how they play out may be triggering to you, please choose another adventure. This may not be the one for you. That being said, you know me, I will not say anything in great detail, only what needs to be said. Our story begins at the Fort Heritage Precinct, as it is known today, where the Northwest Mounted Police Officers in 1875 would set up their Northern Alberta outpost in Fort Saskatchewan, 
located 30 kilometers downstream from Edmonton near the junction of the Sturgeon River and the Fort Saskatchewan River. The outpost was originally called the Sturgeon Creek Post, but was quickly changed to the Fort Saskatchewan Post. From 1905 to 1955, all men and women from across northern Alberta came to this location for all their court dealings. After 1955 to 1961, only crimes committed by those held in the jail on site would be heard. It was the law and order central for a very large portion of the province for quite some time. 29 people were hung over the course of 1916 to 1960 on these grounds. Many of these were questionable, leaving behind a collection of lost and unsettled souls still roaming the grounds to this day. One of the most famous unsettled souls said to be wandering the grounds is, her real name, as she was born, Philomena Costanzo, but now known to most as Florence Lissandro, the mobster princess. Her soul is said to be attached to the courthouse here on the grounds, where orbs of light are often caught on film and many have claimed to run into her. She was unfortunately hung on these grounds for a crime she may or may have not committed. She was the first and only woman to be hung in Alberta. She was not alone on her fateful day as she was joined by her accused partner who was hung just moments before her. His name was Emilio Picariello. I hope I said that right. Better known to most as Emperor Pick. His soul seems to not have suffered the same fate as the princess, as there is no reports of him ever being seen on the grounds. Now let's get a little deeper into this tale of mystery, a bit of a love story, maybe, true crime, and discover how they ended up here at the Fort Heritage Precinct and lost their lives to the gallows. Oh, and I'll tell you about my own personal spooky experience on the grounds that I was not expecting to have. So do stick around for that. Born Philomena Costanzo In 1900 Italy, at just nine years old, she and her family would come to Canada. At the suggestion of one of her teachers so she would fit in, she changed her beautiful given name to a more common Canadian name, Florence. Some stories do refer to her as Mary as well. But for this one, we're going with Florence, because I found that one most often. At 15 years old, in Fernie, B.C., on October 6th, she would marry a man much older than her. At the arrangement of her father, his name was Carlo Sanfidel. He was 23 years old. The couple would move to the U.S. illegally under her husband's new fake name, Charlie Lissandro, for a few months in search of work, only to return back to Alberta, where her and her husband, would keep their new identities as the Lissandros and would both work for the famous rum-running godfather of the area known as Emperor Pick in 1916. This would be the beginning of where the mobster princess title would come from and historians just really didn't know what to call her. She had so many names, so they landed on the title of mobster princess that was often used when describing her. Her husband, Charlie, now worked as a mechanic and as a driver for the well-known businessman in Blairmore, Alberta, which is located around Crow's Nest Pass, just 47 kilometers or 29 miles west of Pincher Creek, Alberta, or 70 kilometers or 43 miles east of Fernie, B.C. They had no children during their marriage, 
and there were some reports that the marriage was unhappy, but we'll get into that in a bit. Florence would work as a maid or a nanny in Emperor Pick's house. It's unclear which role she played for sure, or she may have done both. This also allowed her to spend time with Pick's son, Stefano, often referred to as Steve, who was around the same age as Florence, and the two often seemed rather close. Emilio Picariello was born in 1875, Italy, the same year, ironically, the Northwest Mounted Police began building their fort in northern Alberta. He would marry and have six children. He would immigrate to the U.S. first and then end up in Toronto, Ontario in 1902 at 27 years old. He would later move to Fernie, B.C. in 1911, now 36 years old, and would begin building his empire. Fernie had been destroyed by fire twice and two coal mine explosions had happened in the area. Pick saw the opportunity to rebuild the town and took it. He had a cigar rolling and ice cream making plant. They were both up and running. He sold ice cream out of a wagon all summer long as well as delivering tubs to shops and grocers in the surrounding area. He kept many families employed for many years in the area and they were all grateful to him. He would hire women to make ice cream and have the men deliver it. It was the same with the cigars. The women would roll them and the men would deliver them. As far east as Coleman, Alberta and Blairmore, Alberta. He was also famously known as the Bottle King. Buying bottles from people at what he claimed to be top dollar. Only to turn around and sell them himself making a profit. He would even take out ads in local newspapers adding to his popularity and claim as the Bottle King. He would start up a garage to fix the delivery trucks he was running. He also would produce homemade liquor and sell it in the tunnels underneath his garage he had set up. He bought and sold produce and dipped his hands into every jar he could to grab some money. He was a very smart businessman. By 1917, at age 42, he would move to Blairmore, Alberta, opening a hotel, and he would even serve one term on the city council. Here is where he meets the Lissandros, fellow Italians trying to make it in Canada, and gave them both jobs like he often did for any Italians in his community. Emperor Pick was known as a smart, generous, opportunist, and he was able to command a whole room with his personality, and most famously, he was known as a notorious bootlegger. His bootlegging operation would run from Nelson, B.C. to Regina, Saskatchewan, he even dabbled across the border in the states like Montana and Idaho. He had been running delivery businesses and networking with customers all across Crow's Nest Pass and beyond for years. Adding rum running to his list of careers seemed like the natural transition and also meant big money. And that was something Emperor Pick could not turn down. As Pick became more heavily involved in the rum-running world, the Alberta Provincial Police began to take notice. Prohibition laws were passed in 1916 in Alberta and 1917 in B.C., and the United States would pass theirs in 1919. Emperor Pick would hear nothing but dollar signs. He jumped at the opportunity. He would employ his son Stefano, who was only a teenager at the time, to help, 
along with four other drivers. Having most of his operation located in Fernie, B.C., this just happened to be the perfect spot, as it was landlocked, allowing easy access to Alberta, Montana, and Idaho, making Fernie, B.C. the source of all alcohol for these surrounding communities during the dry days. B.C. would lift prohibition laws just four years later in 1921, but crossing into the U.S. or Alberta borders with alcohol was still illegal. In Alberta, prohibition would end in 1923, and in the U.S. it continued until 1933. Emperor Pick did not care what the rules were either way. Himself, his son, Florence's husband Charlie, and three other drivers would maintain a fleet of cars called the McLaughlin Sixes, nicknamed the Whiskey Sixes. They were powerful cars known to rip down the back roads and able to evade police officers when chased. It was a risky business full of excitement, chases, and thrills. They would continue to bootleg even after Prohibition was over as the money was just too good to pass up. Customers were always easy to find as everyone drank, from miners to politicians. Florence was known to ride along with Emperor Pick, or his son at times as a decoy, so they would look like a couple traveling across the border, hoping to get rid of any suspicion. This is when rumors started circling that Florence and Pick's son, Stefano, may be more than just friends. I guess they were playing the role a little too well? Either way, it seems she was a willing part of the crimes for many years, acting as a decoy. There were actually rumors that Florence was living with Emperor Pick at the family house due to problems in her own marriage. But like I said, these are just rumors nothing has ever been confirmed. With all this fame also comes enemies. They were already on the Alberta Provincial Police radar. They also were on rival bootleggers like Mr. Big, also known as Jack Wilson from Fernie, B.C., and Mr. R., also known as Mark Rogers, who was known as the King of Bootleggers in Lethbridge, Alberta. Mr. R. is also someone some suspect may have helped the police set up Emperor Pick or may have in fact been present on the fateful night that led to the mobster princess and the emperor's walk to the gallows. But we'll get to that in a bit. On Thursday, September 21st, 1922, the same day there was a solar eclipse, Alberta Provincial Police would set up sting operations in Coleman, Alberta, and Blairmore, Alberta, trying to intercept Emperor Pick or any of his men during one of their rum runs. The first person they came across in Coleman, Alberta, was Pick's son, 16-year-old Stefano. They attempted to serve him with a warrant for his arrest, and he would not have it, and took off. Shots were fired. Stefano was hit in the wrist or the hand, depending on which story you read. A high-speed chase would happen next, but Stefano was able to get away in one of the cars known as the Whiskey Sixes. Word would reach Emperor Pick that his son had been shot by police constable Stephen Lawson. Here's where the story starts to differ, as no one really knows what happened for sure. For some reason, Emperor Pick believed his son was wounded fatally, when he was actually not. Pick would arm himself and head out with Florence in his car to find the officer in Coleman, Alberta. Some reports say the two men struggled over the gun, which then discharged, killing the officer. Others suggest Emperor Pick shot Lawson in the back 
after words were exchanged and Officer Lawson went to walk back into either his house or barracks where he was staying. Reports then say his family, including two young daughters, stood in the doorway and watched as their father, Police Constable Lawson, was shot. Another story states that there were more like four to six shots fired, some coming from the car where Florence was reported to be. Some speculate she was acting in defense of her boss or possibly her lover, Stefano, who she would have thought at the time was fatally wounded. Others say the shots came from different directions entirely, indicating there was another shooter present at the scene, and the intended target of the whole altercation may have really been Emperor Pitt, by a fellow rival bootlegger known as Mr. R from Lethbridge, Alberta. There are others that believe the police may have had a role in setting up the altercation as a way to take down one of their most notorious rum runners. Constable Lawson's wife would report only three shots were fired. Two she believed came from the car, but she did not see who shot them. And a third she could not tell where it came from, but that is the one that hit her husband in the back as he turned to come back to the house. As you can tell, no one really knows what happened that fateful night, other than an officer was shot and killed, and Emperor Pick and Florence Lissandro were present. The pair were arrested the very next day where Lissandro quickly admitted to pulling the trigger. A preliminary hearing was held in Coleman, Alberta, where the pair were remanded to a Calgary courtroom, where a six-day trial took place. The two were convicted by jury on December 2, 1922, and sentenced to be hung in Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta, on May 2, 1923. The shooting of a police officer alone, especially by a woman supposedly, brought so much attention to the trial, as well as Emperor Pick's own fame it ended up receiving national attention. The pair were transferred to the Fort Saskatchewan prison to wait out their days. Prisoners at this facility had to earn their keep, working at a farm close by or tending to the jail's flower beds and grounds. Florence, who many believe, only said she committed the crime at the advice of and loyalty to her boss, Emperor Pick, who thought a woman would not be hung in Canada for such a crime. Unable to retract her confession, she pleaded her innocence to the end, writing many appeals and letters that I believe were not even read sadly and denied. Though their days were numbered, the pair may have been able to enjoy a few nice days outside tending to the gardens or the fields before they met their end. On a cloudy, dull morning, which was fitting for the mood, on Wednesday, May 2, 1923, Florence Lissandro would proclaim her innocence to the very end, telling the crowd below she was innocent and that she forgave them, before stepping up and accepting her fate at just 23 years old. Just moments before her, Emperor Pick saw the same fate, stating nothing at all to the crowd as he went. Florence Lissandro would be the only woman to be hung in Alberta, and most believe wrongfully so, as there was no proof as to who pulled the trigger at all. Even sadder, the mobster princess body, along with Emperor Pix, was given to a local who worked for a funeral home, 
and was instructed to bury the two in unmarked graves in northern Alberta, keeping their whereabouts a secret. Florence's family appealed to have her remains returned to Blairmore, Alberta, but were refused by the provincial government. In the end, these two graves were located thanks to a family secret that had been passed down the line for many years. But that's a tale for a Lost Lemon Mine crew to discover over on our Patreon page. So do head there after this tale. Before we head out of the grounds here today at the Fort Heritage Precinct, let's take a quick look around because, like I mentioned before, there's many claims of unsettled spirits said to still be wandering around here. And there's a lot of history too. The grounds today are host to eight historical buildings known as the original Northwest Mounted Police Fort built in 1875, which stood till 1885 and then was rebuilt and remodeled many times to accommodate everything they needed and everyone. If you look past where the fort stands today, off to the left, you'll find a meadow with a boarded walkway just past the original East Gate marker. If you follow it along, it will take you to a circle of signs that tell you all about the grounds and its history. Next, head down the walkway some more and you'll find the original west gate of the fort. Step through there and the view overlooking the North Saskatchewan River is breathtaking. You can tell why they picked this location. You can see for miles. After that, just to the right of the west gate, You'll notice two corners are marked with logs sticking out of the ground, forming a literal corner in the middle of nowhere. What they actually are is two corners marked in the original location of the fort, allowing you to picture where it once stood. It was built right along a huge bluff overlooking the river to the west. I will of course include these pictures on my Instagram, so do make sure you stop by there and check them out. Fun fact? If you're a Canadian and know your history, the famous RCMP officer, Sam Steele, once stayed at this fort before heading on over to the Yukon. Right next to the fort today stands the Warden's House, built in 1937, which greets you as you enter the grounds. It is the only remaining structure from the original fort grounds. The Warden of the Jail lived here from 1937 to about 1973. It is said prisoners in white coats served guest tea in the house when they were invited over. After that, it became a halfway house for female prisoners and extra office space. Today, it is used by the First Saskatchewan Allied Arts Council. Just after that, there's Dr. Henry A. Driggs' house, built in 1913. The TV show Creepy Canada claimed that Dr. Henry's house was the most haunted on the grounds. So many souls had passed through those doors seeking help. Some seem to have never checked back out. Next along the red brick walkway, you'll find the blacksmith shop. This is where my spooky experience begins. Just outside the old shop, there's an old jail cell door. It's tall black iron bars and has the keyhole and everything. I walked up to the door, put my hands around one of the iron bars, and immediately noticed how cold it was. It's August, and it's the middle of the day. I admit, it seemed a little strange. 
Then I circled around the door and headed back to the blacksmith's shop. Unfortunately, I was not able to go on a guided tour as I wanted to because sometimes life just doesn't work that way. So, when I was on the grounds, the buildings were actually closed so I could not go inside. Hopefully one day I can get back there, but for now, I was stuck peeking in the windows. I saw some old tools, a big old wooden workbench. I scanned some more around the shop and saw an anvil that caught my eye and a couple other odd tools sitting on the bench in front of me. And suddenly, I heard a noise from inside the shop, as if someone had just moved some chains or something. I was a little taken back and didn't know what to think. I looked around. No one was around at all. And again, another noise. This time, it almost sounded as if someone had turned the handle of the door. I was looking in the window and did not see it. But the noise came from the right, and that's where the door was. I was feeling a bit spooked and stepped back. I shook my head, told myself I was crazy, and went on to see the other buildings. We're coming back here, so hold on to this thought. Next along the walkway, I found the Soda Lake Church, built in 1911, the Kulak House, built in 1905, the Castle School, built in 1902. All these pieces have been relocated to this heritage site in order to preserve them and their history. For us, they're just along our route, on our way to the courthouse, built in 1909, the place where Florence is said to still be wandering around. As I come around the back side of the courthouse, there are beautiful flower beds and there is a swing hanging from a tree. Something that makes you think of freedom, the good times, childhood, not the law and order that's just around the corner. As you stand out front of this beautiful old red brick building that you should feel good about as it is a preserved piece of history, but there's something about it that you can't help feel the darkness that surrounds it. So many lives' fates were decided on the second floor of this building. Every accused person who stood trial here would be marched up a long set of stairs to hear their fate. Sadly, many of those stories were just like Florence's and did not end well. In most cases, it was often blamed on their defense at trial as not being adequate. The first floor of the courthouse was used for offices by the Alberta Provincial Police, or at times it housed the jail accountant and his family. Disembodied voices, strange whispers, phantom footsteps, objects moving and disappearing mysteriously, along with lights being turned on, have all been witnessed all over the grounds. But in some places, like the courthouse and Dr. Henry's house, there are a lot more reports. Some of the spirits have been known to play tricks at times. They are often seen walking the grounds at night as if they are just out for a stroll. And keys are often heard jingling as if on a police officer's belt and no one is around. I spoke to Florence as I walked around the courthouse hoping she might be there and listening. I told her I was doing a podcast about her story and that I was so sorry for what had happened to her. 
I took a few more pictures and headed back around the courthouse and out the old village, back down the red brick road. I walked past the old schoolhouse, the Kulak house, the church, and then just as I was heading out, Dr. Henry's house was on my left and the blacksmith's shop was to my right. I thought about what had happened earlier at the blacksmith's shop and thought, oh, I'll just go over there one more time and see what's up. And seriously guys, this park was quiet. Other than a lawnmower and some roofers working in the distance, there was no one else around at all but me. I walked over to the window of the shop again, and this time I tried to take a picture inside. As soon as I clicked that button, the sound of chains moving in the shop happened again. I couldn't even look at the picture I had just taken. I stood there frozen in fear. I was not expecting the sound to happen again. And it did. I stared at the doorknob, waiting for it to turn. Thank goodness it didn't, or I probably would have fainted. My heart was pounding out of my chest. I looked around again. No one was around at all. Dr. Henry's house was right behind me, the most haunted place they say on the grounds. I quickly turned away and headed back out, down the red brick path, out to my truck, covered in goosebumps. I looked back probably three or four times and never saw a thing. When I got home, I looked at the picture I took from inside the blacksmith's window. I will post it on my Instagram along with others from the site so please do go check them out. All I can say is this is a very strange picture for sure. There is a weird yellow blob of light in the top right on my phone case along with a lot of other strange white orbs and specks. Some I can explain as dirt or maybe a smudge on the window but others I cannot especially that yellow blob. There was no paint on that window. I have other pictures from the outside and I have checked. There was nothing like that on the window. There is also two very weird squares on my phone case that appear to be reflections, but I have a dark black and purple phone case that does not reflect. It's made of plastic. It's not shiny at all. And even stranger, they are not reflections of what I'm taking a picture of or what's behind me at all. It's a really weird picture, so do go to my Instagram to see it for yourself. I don't know what to say. The whole incident at the blacksmith shop has truly gave me the creeps and made me scratch my head and ponder a lot of things. Was someone in the blacksmith shop trying to get my attention? And for what? There's very little info written about the place, which makes it very hard to know anymore. Was it Florence trying to reach out to me? Or even possibly someone else? Or did my imagination just get the best of me? I'm Canadian Girl. Until next time, my friends. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.
At the beginning of this episode, I may have mentioned something about having a Patreon channel with crews for you to join, but I have come to find it was not the best course of action for this show. So if I did mention anything about Patreon, I apologize. That being said, if you do want to support the show, you can do that now in three simple ways. The first is the absolute easiest way and means the most. If you could kindly leave us a shiny 5-star review on Apple Podcasts, this small gesture helps our show out so much by allowing us to move around on the podcast charts so we can meet more awesome listeners just like you. The second thing you can do is stop by our souvenir shop where you can pick up episode-themed gear. The shop has everything from t-shirts, sweatshirts, water bottles, cell phone cases, and more. Grab a souvenir today from your favorite adventure to take on your very own. The third and final way to support the show is by donation. We have an amazing PayPal button that you can find right at the top of our webpage at nothingcanada.com. Allows you to donate as much as you want, whenever you want, to the show. That way we can buy a new book for research, new equipment, pay for the show's website. You can find all the links to help support the show in the notes below. I thank you so very much for your support. You guys, who always listen to the very, very end, you are the raddest people out there, and we all need friends like you in our lives. I hope your week is full of sunshine, happiness, and summertime goodies. I'm Canadian Girl. Mm -hmm.